Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostre. Amen. Nomine Patris, Fidi, Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Brethren, Christ, Christ is risen. Isn't indeed. It is farmer's hours in the Americas on the Eastern Seaboard. This is the Terror of Demons morning show with co-host Kennedy Hall. How you doing, brother? Living the dream about you. Living these dreams over here in America. We're uh, doing okay. Enjoying the Midwestern springtime. Yes. Are you, are you enjoying the... Uh, what, do you, what do you call that region? You don't call that the Midwest. You call, just call that... Uh, Southwestern Ontario. Southwestern Ontario. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, welcome to the fourth week after Easter. We have mm. a, a number of excellent saints. This week, we, we will be pleased to... to uh, Actually, this Thursday, we're going to have another show. Kennedy and I will be interviewing the makers of this beautiful uh, liturgical art, uh, mainly uh, the misses of that tr- uh, that team makes the beautiful art. I think the mister is, uh, does his, his supporting role. But uh, th- this is the fourth Sunday after Easter. We have um, – so, okay, th- so this Thursday, we'll be interviewing the makers of Liturgy of the Home. This is Liturgy of the Home. And we have uh, – Today, in fact, is a is a wonderful historical tidbit that I that I discovered in my book, um, Kennedy. So today is the a traditional French feast of the finding of the Holy Cross. Oh, it's an wow. ancient feast that was it was suppressed in the um, 1962 uh, calendar. It just got ch- uh, got put together with the exaltation of the Holy Cross, September 14. Okay. okay. So so today we have Saint Helena, uh, the finder of the Holy Cross, but. May third, so it's the finding of the Holy Cross. If you if you have the Father Lassant's missal, because that's the older rubric from 1945. Um, but interestingly enough, do you know the story of Mehmed the Conqueror invading Italy in the 1400s? I don't. Okay, this is a great Italian, a great Italian story. So, teach me about my culture, Tim. <laughs> yeah, I will teach you about your culture because I'm an American. That's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Mehmet conquers Constantinople. You know that story. Mm-hmm. So there's the fall of Constantinople. He makes it to Italy with the Ital- with the with the help of uh, trader Italians like the the Venetians who are always seeking money and they're making alliances with the Turks, but he lands on he lands uh, in Italy, and um, there is I forgot the the name of the town, but he takes over one of the Italian towns and he says, okay, now we're going to sacrifice eight hundred, we're going to make an example of these eight hundred uh, Italians and one man a tailor 
uh, I got to look up his name right now because everyone can look this up because it's awesome. Um, he says, I will die a thousand di- deaths for Christ. He says to the, the Mohammedan who says, well, you know, we'll give you your prostitutes if you if you renounce Christ. And he says, I'll die a thousand deaths for Christ. And then 800 Italian men rise up and they're martyred by Mehmet. So we're in the Italian peninsula. They are in, they've, they've landed and they're about to just go conquesting. The entire Christendom is shaking for fear. The Pope is leading prayers. Everyone's praying. And suddenly God strikes him dead on May 3rd, the feast of the Holy cross in the month of Mary. He just dies. And that's it. That's the end of that threat. How did he die? Do you know? I, you know, I don't know how he died, but uh, he just died on this day. So right. that's that's the end of that whole threat. But it was uh, in, as well as those martyrs in the Italian Peninsula Slow. It, it's Excellent. amazing. Some of those, uh, like the one that still gets me is is how the Huns left. They just went and talked to the Pope. And oh, yeah. Like, yeah, that's a great story. I love that story, too. St. Leo like just, the Great. Yeah. <laughs> t- I mean, if you read the story, if you read the history of, of their military abilities, especially in a pre-industrial age, it's unbelievable. Like, it's it, the, the Mongols were, it's the stuff of legend, literally. It's like legends that you would read in folklore, but they're real life. They mean, like, 50-pound bows that they're holding while riding on horseback with no saddles and shooting. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable what they could do. And they just left. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Saint, Saint, yeah, so St. Antonio Primaldo, he was the one who wrote, uh, rose up against Mehmet. So the, they took over the, um, the town of Otranto is okay. where they were. They, they killed eight th- 813 men, died mm-hmm. for Christ in the Italian peninsula, after they landed it, this was in 1480. So a uh, quick uh, fun tidbit there. So we also have, uh, speaking of the Mohammedans, we've got another big Mohammedan feast day this week, and that is St. Pius V. Mm-hmm. We have a wonderful uh, artwork is great. on And here we have St. Pius V praying mm-hmm. to Our Lady of Guadalupe, Our Lady of Guadalupe with the ships. Um, That's a cool got, story. Yeah, absolutely. St. Stanislaus. Hmm. Uh, also a first friday reminder this fir- yep. this friday is a first friday yeah so uh if you're making your first friday uh or if you're doing the crusade of reparation eucharistic reparation great day to do that make an hour of uh eucharistic adoration for reparation for sins against the blessed sacrament so uh mm-hmm. without further ado Let's get into our show. We have a lot to cover, and we're going to try our best to get through it as fast as possible. There's just an insane amount of things going on at this time. The question posed by this show is, did Pius XI cause the current crisis in the church? This is the crucial period. Fatima began 1917 um, and asking for penance, asking for the consecration of Russia, asking for certain devotions to be restored or to be really introduced and, and um, spread um, as a means to avert World War II. Mm-hmm. And this is the whole premise of these apparitions is that God is punishing the world with World War I and there's going to be another worse war unless we repent, unless there's a consecration, unless all these things happen. So the question is, did Pius XI cause the current crisis in the church? We'll try to get into all that. Now, 
I want to introduce, we are going to, this is the part, this is the first part of eight more shows we're going to do. On Only line. eight, we promise. <laughs> Only eight more. We're on, what part is it? Seven now? Part of a seven? So we, we've done all this, done all these shows trying to illustrate the context of these things with all this historical. And we're finally going to get into the debating of these controversial subjects. So what we're going to do here is we've identified four different controversies of Fatima. There, yeah. The first first controversy is, did Pius XII do the consecration to Russia during World War II? And that will be the subject of next week's show. And on each of these debates, I will try to argue against whatever Kennedy says. I don't care what he says. I'm going to argue against it. So Kennedy works at the Fatima Center. So he supports whatever, basically whatever Fatima Center's... Um, Just the... Uh, call it the uh, you know consecration truth. has not been done position. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. So no. that so that the, the viewpoint of Fatima Center on all these four controversies will be what Kennedy is be supporting, and then I will be arguing on the opposite side of whatever that is. So next week will be Pius the Twelfth. So I will argue that Pius the Twelfth did the consecration of Russia, mm -hmm. and then week after that we'll be doing more history. That'll be post war World War Two up to nineteen sixty, and then after that I will argue that there's a false Lucia. I will argue from that. That'll be the second controversy, the assertion that there's two Lucias. There was an imposter, basically. And then uh, show after that, we'll talk about Vatican II and everything that's happened in the 60s and 70s, all these historical things. Then I will argue that John Paul II did the consecration to Russia in uh, the 1980s. And Kennedy will argue against me. And then after that, we'll bring it all the way up to the present day. And then I will further finally argue that the third secret has been fully revealed and Kennedy will argue that it has not. So those are the next eight parts of this show. <laughs> so it's amazing. Uh, it's buckle amazing. In. <laughs> and today we'll see this as well, but uh, Fatima, it's like the story of the 21st or the 20th century. You know, when you think about all the, uh, that's why it's such a rich apparition. Uh, when you think about everything involved in it, uh, which is, Probably why it's so well on the one, let's say the one side of, of the traditionalist leaning who are trying to say, hey, there's there's kind of a problem here. You know, they, that's why they're so adamant about saying what they believe to be the truth about it. And the other hand, you find tons of resistance from the mainstream narrative in the church against anything to do with the so-called Fatima conspiracy. Um, real resistance, like really, really interesting stuff. And you know what? You know it's probably because um, it's 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 the most important event in the church's history recently, in the last probably a couple hundred years, because everything that happened at Fatima, or everything surrounding Fatima, the context. I mean, look, we we're able to do like fifteen shows just trying to talk about what was going on around Fatima, because it encompasses all geopolitical maneuvers and et cetera. So it's a very big deal. Absolutely. And there's, there is a spectrum of, this is, this is the, one of the efforts of meaning of Catholic is to try to bring Catholics to, together to debate disputable topics, yeah, yeah. not, uh, not things of the faith, which cannot be disputed and trying to dis dis distinguish between those things and say, hey, these are dogmas. Yeah. These are not open for discussion over here. Yeah. Uh, even though the so-called liberal Catholics think those are up for discussion, they're not up for discussion. But we do want to debate and really get into all the things that we can dispute. And one of those things is Fatima in certain senses of Fatima. 
Yeah. And we, we'll talk more about uh, once we introduce the debate about um, in what sense can we sort of, quote unquote, dissent from Fatima? What are the, you know, what's the authority of Fatima and private revelation, that type of thing. So we'll talk about that next week when we introduce the debate. But this week, uh, we're going to continue talking about this period, which is the so-called interwar period. Now, what, it's basically it's the opportunity from a from a Fatima's perspective. It's the opportunity to repent essentially, that God has given the world the opportunity to respond to the message of Fatima, to repent and do penance. But as we saw last week, talking about the first sexual revolution, there was anything but repentance being promoted by the two mm -hmm. empires, which are the American empire, which is a Masonic conspiracy, mm -hmm. and the Soviet empire, which is a Marxist conspiracy, both yeah. promoting the same thing, which is sexual revolution and feminism. Now, one thing that I, I we forgot to mention, which is very, very important because we talked about jazz, but perhaps maybe even more important was the invention of the moving picture mm. movies. Yes. And in the yeah. 1920s, believe it or not, there was pornography being created by Hollywood and being pushed on the American <clears throat> people. Mm -hmm. Uh it was pornography, all right? Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to get into further details on what I mean by that, but pornography is the easiest but way to describe it. It was pornography. <laughs> so Hollywood starts producing pornography, and this shocks the conscience of American people because most of them are religious. Most of them are Protestant. There is a strong Catholic minority. The Protestants are so divided that they can't figure out how to deal with it. They can't challenge it. The Catholic Church alone is able to challenge the pornography of Hollywood, which is being produced throughout the world. And they organize a, a nationwide boycott of Hollywood movies, which are pornographic, and they're mm -hmm. able to coerce and force Hollywood to make clean films. And this is the this is what's called the code era, the era of the Hollywood code from approximately 1933, 35 to 1965. I call it the golden era of Hollywood. Um, this is one of the, some of the greatest films were made during this time. Yeah. To this day, film yeah. critics, even academic film critics believe that, for example, the movie Citizen Kane is one of the greatest films of all time that was made during this era. So it, it's, this is proof that you don't need to make a bunch of pornography, whatever artwork to make good art. You yeah. can have this cultural, this is basically Christendom. This is what you have in Christendom. You have a certain morals which are enforced by the people, which are enforced by the culture and even the government. But in this case, it was a purely private affair. So it was a private uh, coercing through boycott. Mm -hmm. And this is the context of uh, the destruction and the pornography that comes later. Um, but then we have the crash of 1929, which is the 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 entire we didn't discuss this but the entire 1920s the the second revolution was being promoted in in america in particular which was then being spread to all of the cities which were uh had a free economy because we'll talk about it, how this was different in italy in just a minute but in 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 the 1920s there was a, a, a unlimited free loans uh mm -hmm. are loaning and investing in the stock market which was completely unlimited. Um, it wasn't exactly usury in the sense that you classical sense of usury, but it was essentially just unhindered avarice yep. in, in the market where you're 
the the bankers are just giving out bad loans because they're trying to get more money. And so they're lending everything to anybody to try to get more money. And then you have a crash because eventually that doesn't work because it's just imaginary money. You just write some more numbers on a piece of paper and give it to somebody that's not real money it's not real assets and somebody calls in the interest somebody calls in the, yeah. the bond yield etc and this is this is the situation we're still in this situation you know the exact same thing happened in 2008 which was an economic mm -hmm. crash because there's bad loans because bankers are trying to get more money and we have the same situation now that the you know in the united states they're they're just printing money and sending it to us this it's this is this is bound to fail <laughs> anyhow but there's a yeah, huge crash in 1929 which affects the entire world insofar it is it is building its industry economically on these bad loans now it's it's very interesting because in places like italy there is no great depression because in the 1920s you went from all this quote-unquote prosperity people had all this quote-unquote wealth once again quote-unquote wealth and what they mean by that is just having a t or not a tv at this time but having an automobile yeah you know they call that wealth just because you have something and you have a, a greater convenience but you actually don't own it because you're paying on loans forever on that thing. So you don't actually own it. Uh, you just have a certain convenience and you don't have a productive property. This is the definition of wealth that we've been trying to discuss a little bit because the productive property of wealth is looked at differently in Italy. So yep. tell us about uh, what's going on in Italy. How is Italy not affected by the Great Depression? And these you have bread lines and what all this, this um, poverty that's happening in the 1930s. You went from prosperity quote-unquote to poverty in the americas how did that happen and why is it different in italy well basically i mean think about the countries that were belligerent in um the first world war those countries had uh really industrialized prior to that which is kind of why they could partake in the first world war because it really was the first mechanized war all the way through so canada was a big uh was a big player in world war one Huge, actually. If you're a World War One history buff, the Canadian military was uh, was in there since day one, and a lot of battles and all that. And we industrialized really fast as a result. We already, I mean, you know, if you look at the history of the nations that were involved, um, it was obviously European nations that were industrializing, but it was also the new nations, you know, Canada, United States, um, because we had the machines to do so. So, along with that, came a complete uh, revolution in social life. The uh, rural exodus, the mechanization of farms, moving out into the so the urban planning was the whole thing. I mean, very Marxist things. I mean, um, in a way, E. Michael Jones has talked about this with the whole Bauhaus sort of ethos behind how you make homes and, and neighborhoods and stuff. Basically, it's it's a way of life that's that's based upon having certain machines in order to do so. Actually, there's a gentleman on Twitter, Wrath of Non. I don't know who he is. That's his thing. He's he's a Catholic, but he just He's about 100,000 followers, and he's always putting stuff about urban planning and and cities and traditional architecture and stuff. It was quite an interesting account. But anyway, Italy, Spain, Portugal, uh, parts of France, um, most of Eastern Europe, at that point was not fully industrialized at the time of the First World War. So uh, those who partook, as I said, like parts of Eastern Europe, they industrialized real fast. And um, so places like Italy and stuff, they just weren't set up for that way of life, which means they didn't experience a massive economic shift in the same way as other people did because they couldn't participate in the game. It's, you know, you can't participate in the game of international export and financing if you don't have the tools to play in that game. So they were still largely agrarian. 
their family life and so forth hadn't changed as much. Um, in places like Portugal, it was. They were trying to get it to start changing, especially in the time of Fatima. The Freemasons were in charge and all that sort of thing. Um, so Italy avoided that. Uh, they avoided the biggest crash because they also avoided the biggest type of boom. Um, and same with uh, Portugal was sort of similar. And uh, and Spain was as well. So in come these three guys, Mussolini, Salazar, and Franco. And they all come in. And Mussolini is the earliest, obviously, coming around 1922 or so. And as we'll talk about today, um, his time as uh, as leader of Italy was almost the exact same reign as Pius XI, uh, 1922, if I'm not mistaken, until 45 for Mussolini, until 39 for Pius XI. And, um, and Pius XII was very close to Mussolini under Pius XI. Um, so there was a lot of relationship there anyway. So there was a continuity of, of leadership as far as that goes. But... Um, so Italy uh, in the 1920s began to industrialize in a way that was much more organic with the traditional setup of Italy. And if you go to Italy today, you'll see that, you know, it's kind of like Italy already had a civilization. They already had cities. They already had uh, means of travel between places. So uh, it wasn't as if it was like North America or the major industrializing places in Europe that had been destroyed. Um, and they're rebuilding after World War One, So it's not as if you had these massive highways and things that were the basis of how a city worked. It was more like we already have a civilization. Let's, let's add on top of that with industry as best as we can. So it really was a much more organic outgrowth. And even today, one of the problems when you go to Italy is traffic is always terrible because they still have their old road systems that they've tried to retrofit to have cars. Um, you were going to say something, though. Oh, did, did so would you say that this was an economic development in Italy that subordinate itself to the needs of the family. It's yes, family I mean needs of, the needs of the state. Like, and then that's where um, when you talk about corporatism, fascism, communism, you know, in, in the in the context of the 1920s, definitely needs of the state. But the concept of the needs of the state with Salazar, with Mussolini, with Franco was the family. So, you know, we There's think the promotion of the family by the state you know, have children. That's, that's what the state is, is the right. families and the church and so forth. You know, like that's kind of, you know, I love me some, I love me some libertarians as far as being against the government that we have, but <laughs> so often be like anything for the state is wrong. And I'm like, well, I mean, again, that's a whole other conversation, but well, it, no. it's, it's, just, it's just so much different when you think about the American empire is this massive country that's, uh, you know, 300 today, it's 300 million people. But I mean, even then, when you compare that with Italy, I mean, there's millions of people, obviously, but in terms of geography, it's a lot more, it's a lot easier to have a corporatist state like that when you have a lot less people to deal with and less smaller space. Yeah. You know, um, it's doable, I think. Mm -hmm. You also have a national identity. That's, that's thing. Yeah. That national yeah. There you go. Exactly. That's, and that's the, that is the key right there. Cool. Like, I mean, you know, you say to somebody, uh, we're going to, we're going to rally around being American. It's like, what does that mean <laughs> now? But America has got more of that than Canada though. You at least, you at least have a uh, national myth. That's a big deal. Like, I mean, for all the problems with the American revolution in the moral sense, it's a story nonetheless that you can, you can at least rally around. Um, so that's still something. Um, anyway, so Italy was industrializing differently. Um, and, um, so uh, they did not experience the same crash. So during the 1930s, Italy was on the way up while most people were on the way down. 
Um, and similar with Portugal, they started to go on the way up. Uh, well, everyone was on the way down. And Spain, Spain, Spain didn't have a massive involvement in World War One, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but they did have a socialist revolution in the ni- late 1920s, early 1930s. Um, yeah, so they became a republic. I don't. I don't. Uh, I didn't look into this. So they became a republic. So the just like the American. Re- Empire was promoting the destruction of all monarchy as they yeah. have since 1776. So they're promoting the destruction of all the monarchies from Europe. Everybody's being imposed to have a republic. Mm-hmm. And we'll see in Spain in just a minute why that became a huge problem. Yeah. And it, the Spanish Civil War is really when the American Empire and the Soviet Empire become one, as they will in World War II again. Um, so, but I, I wanted to mention. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got uh, China, Mexico, Portugal, Spain, France, and Germany that we should talk about. <laughs> if we can get through all this, touch on all of them. Uh, and Pius, Pius XI's reaction to these different things, what he does, and his reaction to Fatima. And I want to end with Germany because that leads us straight into World War II. Mm-hmm. Does that sound good to you? Sure, but I also will mention Go ahead. more context for Spain. Um, uh, the Western world, I mean, Latin America was under Spanish colonies for you know 300 years or whatever 350 years that all ended in the late 1800s and um the final blow was the uh the spanish-american war 1898 basically over the philippines so there's a really short time frame between 1898 and like 1920 1925 1930 that's that's a generation that's that's people alive under a an empire and alive under a fallen empire um, so it's the same, I mean, it's the same generation of people. Um, so that Freemasonic, uh, you know, anti-monarchical push was massive in the Spanish empire at the time. Yes. And they were reeling from a great fall, which was fertile breeding ground for revolution, which is, a, which it always is. And, um, and in a way, if you kind of look at the history of Spain, um, it's almost like it was more difficult to control the spread of bad ideas all the way over there across the Atlantic. Um, and so those things, you know, there was a bunch of interchange between mainland Spain and new Spain, let's call it. And then there was a, a an inter, there was a, um, a trickling, trickling down of ideas. And again, we'll talk about Mexico because we the same, see the same thing happening again in fallen new Spain, which is now Re- Republican Mexico. And, uh, yeah. 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 So, yeah, in my book, I discuss how since the Monroe Doctrine in uh, following the Holy Alliance of 1815, <laughs> the American Empire declares war basically on old Europe, on Christendom, mm-hmm. and then declares war on the Christendom of the Americas. Yes. So the Spanish Christendom and the South American Christendom, they, they aren't able to uh, conquer the French Christendom of Canada, thank God. So, so <laughs> for the... Uh, for the sake of all the souls, no, they in conquered themselves eventually. Yeah, unfortunately, they conquered did it themselves later. But yeah. the American Empire has dismantled, has been dismantling the Christendom of the Americas all the way up to this point, which we didn't cover. But finally, in as we said a few shows ago, the Cristero Wars happened because the devil targets in this period that targets the most Catholic areas, which are Mexico and Spain. That's the yeah. that's the the greatest. Yeah. Uh, consecration of the concentration of the church in, in an integration of society and the people and yeah. everything is in Spain and Mexico. <clears throat> and that's where the devil has its greatest his, his his him and his fallen angels take the greatest 
efforts to try to destroy the church in both these areas, and they fail in both mm-hmm. cases, of course, because you, you can't go against Our Lady of Guadalupe and not get stomped if you're the serpent. Um, so, okay, so, and then 1921. So basically, the errors of Russia are being mm-hmm. spread throughout the world. Yep. And what I mean, what I mean by that, first of all, is Soviet agents. Soviet mm-hmm. agents are going everywhere. They're mm-hmm. being spread everywhere. Uh, you have the Mao in China. He learns about the errors of Russia at his university. Mm-hmm. The Communist Party, uh, CCP, the Communist Ch- Chinese Communist <coughs> Party, is founded in 1921. Yeah. Uh, Mao participates in his first in the Communist Revolution in 1927. Mm-hmm. And that's a prelude to 20 years later when the actual Communist Revolution happens in China mm-hmm. and the modern Chinese Communist Empire is born that we're still dealing with. Uh, yeah. So that's China. And we kind of <laughs> have to put that on the back burner because it doesn't really become prominent until uh, after World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we have Mexico. So during this time, as we said, uh, the communists and fallen angels are going after Lady of Guadalupe. The Cristero War is happening. This is the first big blunder of Pius XI because mm-hmm. Pius XI is through influence, once again, of the American Empire. Uh, the American Empire engineers somewhat of, somewhat of a betrayal of the Cristero warriors. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pius XI, through bad advice, because he's uh, Pius XI seems to be a man of God by all accounts, um, but he seems to have suffered from uh, bad. This is I mean this has always been the problem since uh, since Pius X maybe uh, bad Welcome. bureaucracy okay. in the in the Vatican as we know. Yeah, uh, there's there's all these bad actors in the in the Vatican. I think in Pius XI's reigns when we really start to see the bad actors show their show their cards in in the Vatican because they're really pushing for Pius XI against the Cristero Wars. And then later with Padre Pio as well, they they get Padre Pio condemned because they convinced Pius XI that he's Padre the Pio is not Padre Pio. Um, Bishop Williamson, I know he's controversial, but I was listening to him on a podcast the other day, and uh, he has a very frank way of saying things in a very English way. And he said, and I won't do his accent, but he said the Pope's have been really good. He says Pius X was the best. And he goes, Pius XI was very strong, but not bright enough. And Pius XII was extremely bright, but not strong enough. That's just kind of how he summarized it. And what he meant by that was uh, Pius XI was really strong. In, like when he made it, that's one of that's one of the reasons why his, his, his blunders were real blunders is because he made real decisions, which is actually you'd prefer that's what we have now. Oh, yeah. Um, like, and and Pius XI was a great pope. We're just talking about geopolitical maneuvers that were mistakes. Okay? And yeah, and it, this happens with every pope. It's it's yep. especially in this period where everything's changing every ten years. There's insane revolutions. So yeah. it's it's it's. Uh, I mean, Pius the Ninth is a great example because he started off as a quote unquote liberal. Mm-hmm. Even Pius Leo the Thirteenth, they thought he was. Yeah, Leo. Thir- I mean, they. I mean, and then he reversed. I mean, it's just just a chaotic time, and and popes are reversing each other or they're changing. So we need to. I mean, most of all, we need to give all popes the the judgment of charity and give them yep. the, the best benefit of the doubt. Unless it's clear that they're bad actors, then we yep. can say, well, they maybe they're maliciously trying to. But yep. it seems that all these popes are really trying their best. So, um, and actually, I'm say we have to talk about this. The oh yeah, I was going to go Portugal. Talk about Portugal consecration. Then we could talk about um, France, mm-hmm. and then we'll get into the 30s with the Spanish Civil War, and then Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what happens in Portugal with Fatima? 
Tell us about that. So after 1917, obviously, you know, the apparitions are over and then it's a, it's a local appar- it's a local buzz about the apparition. The Freemasons were really ramping things up. Like it was really bad. If you actually look at um, what was happening in Portugal at the time of Fatima, it was actually, I have a, if, um, two videos coming out the next couple of weeks for Fatima Center about Canada and my failed state that I now live in. And one of them is obviously very sad and negative, And one of them is hopeful, I hope. And um, so basically, I go over the communist downfall of Canada, which is all about eugenics. And that's a whole, you know, our healthcare system was started by eugenicists, population control, Freemason, all these kinds of things, as they tend to be. And um, that's led to the literal, you can find videos of Justin Trudeau talking about how much he loves the Chinese state because their dictatorship allows them to spin their economy on a dime, he said. So he just loves China. He's a communist and um, he's an idiot. So he says these things out loud sometimes. He's he's a, he's a non-senile Joe Biden. Let's put it that way. But Biden's probably smarter, um, which is saying a lot. In any case, um, uh, it, Portugal was going through all this stuff. And um, they it was to the point where priests were being arrested and so forth. I mean, the, the, the as Freemasonic government was as bad as you can imagine. And it was getting very heated to the point i mean think of much how think about how disordered and insane you have to be to arrest children as they did with the fatima children <laughs> because they think they see like if you thought they were these eight-year-old what are they eight i mean five, uh, it's like six, six, seven, six seven and nine they're a threat to the state let's arrest the children and it shows you how demonic freemasonry is because um <clears throat> If you're just an agnostic or someone who do, or believes children are telling fairy, star, fairy stories, <clears throat> you would just leave them alone. Unless you are a Freemason. And actually, when you look at what it means to be a Freemason, you are in a demonic cult when you get to... I know a lot of guys, they join and they think it's about pizza and wings. And that's what they tell you, right? I mean, it's like you're going to ride little cars and raise money. But Freemasonry is a demonic religion. And when you get to the highest levels, you are in a demonic cult. And uh, they know that. And they believe in the devil. They serve him which is why they hate Our Lady. So you see that in Portugal. And it was ramping up in the time of revolution and so forth. Portugal was in a republic. And um, the church was being very suppressed. And then eventually, the the, uh, devotion to Our Lady Fatima grows so much, it gets approved by the local bishop. And I don't remember where I read this. Uh, I listened to a sermon by, I think it was Father Redberger, one of those guys. But um, apparently, a local bishop has a special charism even if he's not a very good bishop, he has a special charism uh, to be able to discern whether or not an apparition is true. Um, and you see this even with things like Medjugorje, where the bishop may or may not be that good, but bishop after bishop, two or three in a row, all said, no, this is not uh, this is not um, an apparition worthy of devotion and so forth. Anyway, so <clears throat> Portugal has Fatima. Eventually, 1931, you have uh, the bishops of Portugal consecrate Portugal to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Um, in the way that Our Lady requested, which is another part of the reason why we can say that it hasn't been done, because when it was done on a regional level, it had amazing fruit, which was a complete Catholic restoration in Portugal, like almost immediately under Antonio Salazar. It was bloodless. They did not have a civil war like Spain had, and they didn't. And when they took over the country, they didn't have a um, they didn't have a, a bloody uh, counter rebellion. Let's say. And uh, you had a golden age in Portuguese society, both economically and, uh, yeah, 
What's his question here? Yeah, Nuno says, uh, hello, I'm Portuguese. I can tell you that in the first yeah. Republic, we had 42, <laughs> 42 governments in 16 years, so it was a complete mess. Well, and that's like Italy. You know, I mean, Italy since, you know, I don't, Italy has a prime minister and a president. I try to follow Italian politics. I don't know who either of them are half the time. I think they've had 50 in 50 years. Like, it's insane. Um, Europe is not supposed to be republics. How much more evidence do we need? It's yeah, so, the entire time. Yeah, so the basically you have this push from the American Empire to make everybody republics to mm -hmm. basically undermine the existing culture of Europe and force on them this Americanized ideology of republics. And then you have a much stronger force of Soviet infiltration mm -hmm. who wants to make all of these places into communists. Uh, by my, by violent means and killing people in bloodshed. The Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks were actually setting up. This is people don't realize. Like the Bolsheviks were actually setting up other parties, other Bolshevik parties. Like so, you would be in Spain, and you would be. I'm in the Spanish Bolshevik party. Um, it was an actual uh, ideal instantiation of communism that was popping up all over the world. I mean, it was an international movement. And if you look at how the communists work. They go in about 20 year cycles. And I did a video, two videos for Fatima Center on this, on how their tactics work. It takes 15 to 20 years, basically. It's a process of demoralization, destabilization, and so forth. And they're very intentional about it. And they were doing it since day one, like since 1917 uh, in, in, in Russia, since 1918 around there. And um, you see the crescendo of these infiltration and so forth um, in the 1930s. Yeah. So. Right. The Amer so the American empire is imposing republicanism, mm -hmm. which is sort of this effeminacy. Let's, mm -hmm. all, let's all just get along and we'll vote and it'll be great because the power to the people will just make decisions. So it, it's just sort of draining the masculine uh, force out of the European cultures <clears throat> by this imposition of this political republicanism. And then this far more virulent and violent force mm -hmm. comes in and starts destroying things. So then you have a reaction to that, and that's called fascism. You know, trying to counter the communists. And one of the things, just from a hope perspective, um, one of the exorcists I was listening to once, he said demons don't actually work together. They're actually in competition with each other um, because they're ultimately selfish. Yeah. And one thing we see, this World War, this era is really, it's, it's, it's Marxism versus Freemasonry. So are they similar? Yeah, they are, but they are a little bit different. And they seek different means to enslave people. Freemasonry almost wants to enslave people by pleasure and Marxism is by force. And although they, in a way, will work together, as we see in World War II with um, the Western Freemasonic powers allying with the Marxist powers, they still ultimately hate each other and want domination over each other. Uh, so it's a very, so you're seeing this play out in Europe. And in fact, there's a hypothesis was reading last night and basically they say Europe went, was in a civil war from 1936 which is the beginning of the Spanish Civil War through the end of World War II that was just basically a European civil war that was happening mm. so yeah. the counter reaction is fascism um, and uh, it's so hard to find good stuff to read on Salazar, Franco and Mussolini uh, shocker you know, I was thinking about this before I was yeah, about English this before. sources are probably pretty spare in that but you know what? You almost have to learn the language. Like I was reading something last night and it was talking about, um, you know, Salazar in Portugal was a far right movement uh, where the impetus was the social encyclicals of Ram Navarm and Quadradissimo Anno by the nationalist, uh, nationalist far right extremist Salazar. And he sought to do things. And I'm like, 
it was anti-democratic and it yeah, was, he was an extreme uh catholic who was it catholic. was yeah and it was it uh, he rejected the tenets of open free market capitalism it's like you're just describing a legend like <laughs> I don't know. You're just describing a guy who's super. I mean, anyway. So you just kind of. I was reading something. I'm like, if once you kind of learn the language, and you go, oh, this, this. I'm just going to read this as the opposite, you know. <laughs> and it's like, oh, this is a great story. Um, so uh, anyway, this was uh, that was ha this reaction was happening, and Salazar and Franco, explicitly, both them explicitly. See, Mussolini was more controversial because he himself wasn't wasn't overtly pious okay um or at least didn't express that uh, obviously he had personal life problems and so forth he had you know, mistress and whatever um whereas franco and salazar were known as being conservative faithful catholic men themselves um <clears throat> so they themselves explicitly personally were basing their society off of the calls of the popes with um uh how to you know with, with leo the 13th and with um cardresa mano was that pious to the 11th yeah, uh, yes. Yeah. So basically, how to how to make um, how to make a Catholic society, and Pius XI called Mussolini. He called him a um, he called him a gift of providence, a gift from God. He was a big fan, and um, <clears throat> Pius XII was a big fan of him as well. And when Franco eventually wins the war in Spain. They flew the uh, flag of Franco in the, in Rome. Um, so there was a there was a big uh, relationship there, and it, and it's interesting if you look back historically because Quadrigiano is basically forty years after Rerum Navarum. If you think about it this way, Rerum Navarum is sort of the it's the theory, it's the it's the it's the intellectual kernel of how can we have a Catholic society forty years later. Pius XI, who was a great pope overall, he's looking at okay, these are the ideas. Here's how. Here's what's happening in society. How will this play out? Um, Mussolini's attempt was almost before it was. It was like an attempt to in, instantiate these Catholic principles in a real uh, practical sense in a fallen Christendom, basically. And Quadrigesimo Anno almost is like a stamp of approval on that sort of governance. Is as much as people don't want to admit that, because with Salazar and with Franco in the early 1930s, they're explicitly saying we're basing it off of Rerum Navarum and Corte Mano. Yeah, this is this is what gives the lie to any... And this the reason why we're talking so much about fascism is that this is a crucial factor in Vatican II, mm -hmm. as we'll see right after post-war. This is so important. That's why I read from Christopher Dawson last yeah. week. Christopher Dawson is... Uh, the undisputed greatest historian, of, yes. quote unquote, of the 20th century. And no one can basically say he's some kind of crazy fascist or whatever. And he himself says fascism is closer to the social encyclicals than liberalism or communism, either one of them. Yeah. And so he's the one who's saying, but the, the whole problem with fascism is simply that the state has so much power and it, and it, is, it is easily and it is so easily uh, abusing the church's rights. And, and part of this is understandable because the, the church later on with Franco is going to be actually promoting Marxism. So yeah. that's understandable to a degree. But at the other at the other hand, the stick, if you have somebody like Mussolini, who is not as pious as Franco, yeah. you can have an abuse of or militarism, as you said, invading Abyssinia or whatever. Also, mm -hmm. just, a you know, I, I have heard that Mussolini 
disallowed church groups and wanted only the state groups, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. So imposing the state's honestly, will on the church's influence as a society. It's it's not it's 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 there's similarities when you look back to like when you look back in the times of of Charlemagne and, and men like that the state was almost telling the church who to make as bishop you know uh, you do see this backward this back and forth interplay of where is uh, well saint paul you know the state has a sword and so does the church i mean like the state legitimately authority is from god so um there is a, an aspect where providence will use the rightful authority the natural authority of the state uh to get the house in order and you see in the 1920s and early 30s um in the Catholic countries, we're not Germany yeah. different, but in the Catholic, yeah, we'll talk countries, about cat. We, right, we have so much more to get through. Okay. We'll try to, <laughs> I want to touch on France really quickly because th- and this is such a huge, this is also such a massive step. And this is probably be- when we talked about Russia and Fatima, we'll talk about maybe Pius XI's greatest blunder, but mm-hmm. this may be his second greatest blunder is the, is the suppression of Axion Francais. We've discussed mm-hmm. this in other shows, but essentially, this is sort of the uh, I mean, I see. I view it as there's so many different forms of fascism that are trying to react against the communism, and I see Axiom Français as sort of that form of reaction to communism mm-hmm. because it is uh, Charles Moulin. Yeah. Charles Moulin is a is he is an agnostic, but he, he he's sort of promoting the church. Basically, he's yeah. promoting Catholicism. He's promoting traditional values because he sees that. But the problem with Axiom Français is that it was flying under the banner of politics first in the sense that we need to transform society by politics first, Mm -hmm. which that premise is the same premise as the communists and the Mm -hmm. American empire. That's Mm -hmm. the problem. So that you can see the problem with that, but so, so the bad advisors of Pius 11th convinced him to suppress Axion Francais. And you see under Pius X and Benedict XV, they had done an inquiry into um, Axion Francais. And the advisors to, to, to Pius X and Pius XV said you should be suppressing this, but they refused to, and they didn't act on it. Partly it's because maybe they just, to be honest, they died right around that time. But it was very contentious. Uh, and, but but the greatest Frenchmen of that era, the two greatest mm-hmm. French churchmen of that era, who are Jacques Maritain and Gary Goulagrange, mm-hmm. they both supported Action Francais. Uh, and but Cardinal Bilot. Cardinal Bilot. Oh, B- wait, was that the same Bilo as later? Different. He's someone that people, he resigned when they condemned, he resigned from the cardinal, cardinalship, whatever you call it, when they condemned Axion Francais. So he, he was a right. hero against liberalism. He's one of those okay. men that's forgotten. And he resigned because he was so, he was basically like, this is nonsense. Right. So it, the pro, the difficulty, this is the difficulty of this period is that, should should the church? I mean, this is basically what the church is saying now. The church is saying now, magisterium is saying now. Well, we need to kumbaya with the UN. We need to kumbaya with the the vaccine globalist big business, whatever, because we're going to build back better. Well, then they were saying, well, let's let's build back better with these. Okay, he's a secularist, but he's promoting Catholicism. He's promoting you know all this good stuff. So let's work with him to try to work against the communists. So that's what they were saying then. And that was causing problems. But the main point about this, I want to read from, uh, this is from biography of Marcelo Ruff. This is from <laughs> uh, Fernand Tistia de la Mede, um, uh, Mayor Ray. He says this on page, uh, I had it, 49. He says this, <clears throat> because this is, this is the key part about France. 
He says, the condemnation of Action Francais was a turning point in the history of the church. From then on, the bishoprics were given to left-wing clerics, whilst all opposition to liberalism was falsely tarred with the same brush as Action Francais. Mm -hmm. And so in France, because France sort of is the pulse of Europe, mm -hmm. France is kind of what's cool for Europe. It's been that way for centuries. So what France does is kind of what other people think is cool. And that's kind of the way it influences society. And this is going to be, have a massive effect because uh, this is the book I recommend to viewers. It's um, The Avant-Garde Theological Generation by John Kirwan. And he talks about how there's this interplay between the theologians of this period in the 1920s and 30s in France. Mm -hmm. And there's arising this new generation of younger theologians. This is, these are people like Henri de Lubac at this period right here. This is where they're getting, they're growing up and they're seeing this whole thing that these are the people who are going to create Vatican II. And because of Action Francais, this new generation, which also is mixing, I'm not saying Lubac is mixing with communists, but some of his friends may be, and that whole group is mixing with the communists in, in left-wing France. And they're the ones who then become the dominant force in France, especially after World War II. Mm -hmm. And so this suppression of Vaxion Francais is so critical, which brings us straight into Vatican II. Mm -hmm. And so that's why the question is, did Pius XI, and, and I, Cologne actually mentioned uh, in one of his uh, broadcasts that Pius XII, one of his first acts as Pope, Pius XII, was to reverse this. Mm -hmm. So it was well known that it was well known that this may have been unjust or was a problem or all sorts of things. Pius XII immediately reverses it. So it's a serious blunder. It's a big blunder. And um, Marcel Lefebvre's seminary professor, Father Lefloche, um, who was a big, big name amongst the intellectuals at the time, he was a great uh, seminary professor at the French seminary in Rome. He was basically teaching the seminarians Action Francais for as far as social, social teaching goes. Um, and when they were condemned, it was like a tragedy. Uh, Really, it was it was really it was really a tragedy for for the, the true understanding of the kingship of Christ. Yeah, I believe uh, uh, Lewis. I believe this is a Frenchman right here. If I recall, you can correct me if you're not a Frenchman. But it says he's saying it's very different from the the contre uh, revolution after this was period. Yeah. So just yeah, going after <clears throat> the and that's counter revolution going back to 1789, of course. And uh, French French. French uh, integralism and so forth has been very fractured and split ever since. You know, you have the um, Abbé de Nantes, who is, you know, the Catholic counter-revolution uh, uh, or whatever order he started. He's kind of a mixed figure, but he's very anti-Society St. Pius X, for example, um, even though he says every exact same thing about, I mean, he almost goes further than Lefebvre about Vatican II and, and things like that. And then, of course, you have the side of St. Pius X, which is really big in France, all things considered. Um, and uh, it's been a complete uh, mess within French Catholicism. And we saw that trickle into Canada eventually, which actually it's interesting. After um, Action Francais was condemned in France, there was similar movements in Quebec. But they weren't called Action Francais, <laughs> yeah. so it, nothing was nothing was condemned there. So you did see uh, across the pond a glorious um, figure named Maurice Duplessis, Duplessis, who was he called himself a um, he wasn't a fascist because it wasn't it wasn't it was provincial politics in Canada, but he called himself a Montanist, like they use that term Montanist, you know, like a papal whatever, and um, 
And we see that happening across the pond. And Marcel Lefebvre was actually a big figure in Quebec in the 1950s and 60s. Um, it's just, you can read old newspapers of him. Yeah. Like newspapers yeah. today, they're like reading, it's like reading the Washington Post. They're such rags. Um, but they're, it's like Le Devoir in Montreal. And there's op-eds by Lefebvre. It's very strange. But uh, Yeah, the uh, there's a show we did with Colombe on yeah. French Catholics in North America. It's, um, I really enjoyed that show. Um, it's so... Big bright spot from uh, Pius XI is 1930 encyclical Casti Canubiu, in yeah. which he condemns the sexual revolution, he condemns yep. feminism, he condemns the so-called emancipation of women as actually a slavery of women, as, to his credit, Paul VI will also predict in 1968. Yep. <clears throat> they understand that this is, and Leo XIII did the same thing in, um, what was it, 1890, Arcanum. Mm -hmm. They understand that this false feminism is actually going to destroy women. It's mm -hmm. going to objectify her in an economy as it already mm -hmm. has been doing. And it's going to basically just burgeoning this terrible pornography plague, destroying women and children across the globe as this false feminism. So 1930 is a great encyclical. 1931, as you mentioned, Quadragesimo Anno, Quadragesimo Anno, influenced by the great Heinrich Pesch, the German, yeah. which we'll get into Germany in a second, but we're trying to go as fast as we can here. But the unfortunately, you have to go to the next big blunder, which is the greatest blunder of Pius XI, which is not consecrating Russia. Mm -hmm. And I've got, um, I want to put up the, here it is. Okay. Timeline. So here's the timeline. Um, so we have fall of 1930. There's sufficient evidence that Pius XI knew of the request made by Jesus and Mary through St. Sister Lucia. He does nothing. So by 1930, it is quite clear that uh pius XI was informed of this uh so to it i mean to be fair you know i'm I, how many how many people per day how many quote-unquote visionaries does a pope receive every day thinking that jesus talked to them okay that's to be fair yeah it's easy to be skeptical but on the other hand uh we have a massive public miracle which as this timeline says 1930 october 13 bishop jose Correa of lee uh, Lee Ria approves the Fatima apparition. So now it's been approved. So it, it, now it's just not just a, just a next new visionary. So then we have 1931, our Lord appears to the infirm sister Lucia um, and tells her, quote, make it known to my ministers that given the, given they follow the example of the King of France and delaying the execution of my command, they will follow him into misfortune. And this is of course the reference to the French revolution in which uh, Louis the Fourteenth and Fifteenth were both asked. I think it was Fourteenth originally who received the request, if I recall. Mm -hmm. uh, Louis the Fourteenth received the request from Saint Mary Merleau-Ponty to consecrate France to the Sacred Heart. He didn't do it. Neither did his son. Uh, I think Louis the Sixteenth was his grandson, if memory serves. But Louis the Sixteenth finally does it, but it's too late, and the French Revolution happens. It happened to the day as well. To the day, and like literally uh, to the day of that initial request that's when uh the upstart third estate took power away in a parliamentary fashion and then four years later to the day uh, the king had his head chopped off so, so there you go and that's a hundred year it's a hundred year window so that's why the next the next few years are going to be a doozy because that request was made in 1929 technically um and um 1931 was two years after that had happened uh, but it was right. two years after the request was made specifically how to do the consecration um yeah right so we'll we'll get into this goes into our next debate actually because the there's a different perspective from the other side on that one so we'll get into that debate next week stay tuned 
Um, but in any case, we know that Sister Lucia was requesting and Pius XI was aware of it. We know that he must have been aware of it somehow with all this. It's all been uh, pressing upon him. Um, and we're going to get into what's happening in Germany during this time in just a minute. Um, but it, so in 1936, timeline says... Uh, so 1935, Sister Lucia insists that the request of heaven must be heeded. 1936, she reiterates, it is necessary to insist that our, for our Lord, he wants the church to acknowledge that the consecration as a triumph of the Immaculate Heart and place its devotion beside the devotion to my sacred heart. Mm-hmm. We've got a formal letter, 1937. He receives a formal letter uh, from Bishop Lira. He gives no response. And so we'll get back to this in just a minute when we talk about, because we got to talk about the Spanish Civil War. Because mm-hmm. uh, what happens in Germany, this is right before what I will, I will assert that World War II happened in 1938, and I'll explain why. Uh, but this is 1937. So Pius XI does not do the consecration of Raja. Kennedy, do you have any speculation uh, as to why do you think Pius XI did not do the consecration? I don't know. The only thing I can say in general why the popes haven't done it in the way, like, listen, in the collegial sense of with the bishops, part of me thinks it's just, it's hard. Like, I know that sounds silly, but to have all the bishops around the world doing the same thing, um, there's a way to do it, but it requires a firm hand that uh, is hard in our day. And basically, um, uh Basic, basically, you'd have to say every bishop has to do this, I don't know, give it a time window, let's say at noon, your time or something. Um, and if you don't do it, you're latest intensity excommunicated. Like, that would be the only way where you, that'd be the only way you could basically ensure that everyone who is a bishop of the Catholic Church has done it. Because if he hasn't done it, he's been excommunicated and is no longer under the, you know, that sort of thing. That's kind of the only way you could make something like that happen. I think that's one of the big issues is why it's been so hard to do is it's uh that's a, that's a big deal. Anyway. So I, with everything going on, I mean, uh, in the world at the time, bishops in places everywhere from Latin America to Quebec, to the States, to, you know, what's it called? Um, uh, Vietnam. I mean, you've got all these places that are having massive social changes that are Catholic, and having all of them do a massive collegial consecration. I think is just a big deal. Yeah, Lowell. Shout out to Australia, our Australian viewers. Lowell says, um, "Yeah, she's she's making so she's making a point, a very good point here because there's so many. We talked about the bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah, um, we we have to make an assumption that Pius XI did actually receive these letters. Yeah." I, I'm not aware of it, him actually mentioning Fatima ever. Um, there yeah. is there he had, he do has a letter of, uh, I believe there's a it's like a little letter on the rosary. I have to check out check the reference here, but he does mention sort of a, an impl- implicit reference, I think. But to my knowledge, I've, I've never heard of Pius XI actually mentioning Fatima in this sense. So we could also say, well, he never even got the letters. So very good point here from thanks, Lowell. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we got to talk about the Spanish Civil War, and then we'll talk about what's happening in Germany and how this leads. But I wanted to mention, too, as well, the Soviets are continually, uh, they're still destroying everything everywhere. We have the Holodomir in 19, was it 33? Holodomor, pardon pardon my lack of uh, pronunciation. So the the terror famine of 1932, 1933, Mm -hmm. when the Soviets forcibly 
starved to death millions of Ukrainians. Mm -hmm. And this was, this is what one of the many mass murders of Stalin and all of his henchmen uh, leading up to World War II. And we need, we really need to see this in context because this is going to help us see World War II for what it really is, mm-hmm. which in my book, I, I call World War II a mass murderer and his allies <laughs> against a mass murderer and his axis. Yeah, that's that's what I think we need to understand World War II as, because even today, people still think World War II was this glorious America versus Hitler and all this nonsense. I mean, need to, they need don't to, understand the complexity of the situation. It was it, a punishment from God is what it was. You, you it, Yeah, you really can see the infiltration of uh, communists in academia when somehow you can say, well, communism, like you can say in a group of intelligent people, communism isn't bad. It just hasn't been tried properly. Imagine saying Nazism isn't bad. It just hasn't been tried properly. Exactly. There and you like, go. Arguably, exactly the communist. Arguably, the communists were worse. I mean, it's like are worse. Yeah, it's like the <laughs> just, most just in insane. terms of bodies, just in terms of bodies, because because all they care about is just numbers. Well, just, and just and not even just the bodies, but um, the things they expected of their people. You know, I mean, like they really. Anyway, it's just it's insane what they did. It's when you read Solzhenitsyn, it's like you think this. It's too strange to be fiction. Yeah, and you're thinking, I don't know how. Like it's unbelievably insane. No, just obviously the bodies, mass murder. Okay, both both uh, the Nazis and the communists did that. But on top of that, the way that they were trying to organize society, it was a complete upheaval from top to bottom. Yep. So so speaking of the communists, now we got to talk about Spanish Civil War, then we'll get into Germany. And this is where it gets really interesting because uh, – so you have in your timeline here, Kennedy, the Spanish Revolution breaks out in 1931. Prime Minister Azana – solemnly declares that the parliament today yeah. spain has ceased to be catholic mm-hmm. so as i understand it there the soviets were funding the communist revolution quote unquote in spain via the republic and this is important because mm-hmm. in america we are having a biden revolution of unity here which <laughs> is a, a brave new world over here and you've already had that uh decades ago or whatever in canada lamentably yeah. uh and uh so this is what happened in the spanish republic it's a quote-unquote democracy so all the communists infiltrated and they were able to push in their democracy to try to get more and more power for these all these soviet agents who are communists or spanish and so they're pushing for a communist revolution in spanish in spain mm-hmm. and then finally to 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 break this long story way too short Finally, war breaks out in Spain between the communists who are known as the Republicans, I believe is the term falsely, falsely ascribed to their group. The communists are falsely called the the Republicans who are fighting against the nationalists, Mm -hmm. who is Franco and his important ally are the Carlists who insist they insist the Carlists are the most faithful Catholic group in Spain for decades and decades. And they insist that this whole war be imbued with a crusading spirit. And they view it as a crusade. They view that this is a crusade against the fallen angels because Spain, as, as we know, has led the fight against the fallen angels for since uh, Palayo in, uh, in the 700s. And mm-hmm. this is, I'm told, uh, shout out to Luis Medina over at Reconquista, Reconquista Radio, um, Luis told me that I was discussing this with him before we I went on the show. He said that the Carlists were so imbued with the crusading spirit 
that they were giving their lives and their blood more and more and more than anyone else in this war. And they were willing to go and sacrifice and die on the battlefield to stop the communists. Mm -hmm. And as a result, they were so few in number after the Spanish Civil War. Mm -hmm. So they were they had been killed so much because they sacrificed so much in this war. And um, that is it's just one more Spanish crusade, mm -hmm. which was a victory against the enemies of Christ. So this is one one more glory of Spain in all the victories for Christ that Spain has conquered for Christ. So it is a, a truly a glorious story. And there's many martyrs, many, there many martyrs. There were there, um, uh, of this five, period. 500 yes. beatified uh, under, oof, I can't remember which pope. Uh, I was reading about it last night. <clears throat> but they were the martyrs. Like So, I mean, this was seen as, so a little bit of context for the republicanos in Spain. Uh, when I did my Spanish degree, they were the heroes in our textbooks. And, <laughs> you know, yeah, we had an optional, I did, a, I literally did a course called Spanish Civil War Era Poetry. Talk about things we'll get into. Oh, yeah, you talk. mentioned that yeah. last week. Yeah. It was very interesting. I mean, it was like the, the thing about these um, revolutionaries and communists and so forth. It's just like the same, with the, it's the same thing they do with Hollywood. Because there's, because they're, sensualists and materialists they make really uh, attractive art in all forms that they do because it's it's very human right in that sense it's 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 a fallen humanism so so it appeals to emotions and senses and things and i remember reading some of it uh they were it was a completely degenerate group of people people like to get to the point where you can destabilize a nation you have to corrupt their morals you have to corrupt their morals. It was extremely sexual. It was extremely degenerate in its sexuality. Um, it was pornographic. Even this, the poetry was pornographic. I had to read some of the poetry in university. I'm thinking, you know, these guys were doing opium. They were promoting opium usage. Um, it was like we talked about a few weeks ago. It was sort of like a counterpart to the jazz era. It wasn't done through jazz, but it was done through this sort of pagan renaissance, something or other. And... Um, and they had uh, they were suppressing the church in, in academia to the point where you know uh, the bolshevik minded people would go into schools and they would uncatechize the children and so forth um it was a time where marriages were breaking down because uh, adultery and open marriages were being promoted it was a complete and utter abomination it was a, an abomination of society and i'll be honest with you it was all of these revolutionaries every single one of them is a pervert um, and me, Michael Jones talks about this with the Marquis de Sade and the French revolution and so forth. Every revolution has with it sexual perversion, degeneracy, pornography, etc. And, um, this one was no different and they were extremely evil. These, they, they were so evil. These Republicans, like this is one of the reasons why they suppress the truth about this is because the, the liberals know that there's such thing as just war. This is why they have to make up their own history so they can justify their revolutions as being a just war. Um, they know that there is a just war. And when you look at what the Republicans were doing in Spain, it was disgusting. They were burning priests and nuns alive in churches and so forth. Like they were as demonic and evil. And when Franco came in and, and cleaned the house, people say, oh, he was too ruthless. Honestly, if you study word for word what happened, I'm sure obviously the individual soldiers and stuff made some mistakes. It always happens. Yes. But but when you look at what they, it was an exorcism, it was an exorcism of devils from a country, um, and uh, you don't you can't reason with devils, and uh, it was 
a complete societal collapse. And, um, and the only way that it could have been done was how it was done. Yeah, this is and this is another and very important thing, because it'll be crucial. When we talk about Vatican II, uh, because yeah. the the Marxists are so demonic. And so, by the way, so this is this is where militarily the American Empire and the Soviet Empire are both uniting to support these evil Republicans side who are burning the priests in, in the churches. Yeah, they're being supported militarily, financially, uh, tanks, guns, even volunteers. There's the American Brigade of Communists <laughs> yeah. that are fighting Canadian against too. They, the, it was the international so, international whatever they so were this called. is this is kind of where the mask comes off a little bit mm -hmm. uh even though it's so obscured still by the, all this false history the american empire and the soviet empire both support these evil demonic republicans killing all of these martyrs that we venerate today mm -hmm. are being supported by the american soviet empire so and canadian and can <laughs> canadian. we sent, we sent yeah, like a I, thousand soldiers volunteers there we go so the um so this is going to be crucial because Franco is going to insist mm -hmm. that we have to be strict with the communists mm -hmm. because he knows what, what they're capable of. Mm -hmm. We have to be strict. We have to be uh, strong against them or they'll take over. And he keeps on insisting this, but through the influence of Vatican II and Paul VI, and after Franco dies, of course, there is a surrendering and we'll see what happens in Spain after that. Lamentably, you know, that because um, Franco was right about the communists. He was and, well, just a side note. You know, that Canadian Protestant pastor with the Polish accent who's been all over the news and he was screaming at the police to get out. Do you see yeah. that? Yeah, I didn't see that. Yeah, but go ahead. So he's been on like uh, the first, you know, that uh, right wing station in the States with Jesse Kelly. And anyway, but anyway, he, um, I wish he was a Catholic priest, <laughs> um, but he, grew up in Poland and they escaped to Greece and then they came to Canada and um, people who like, he's been so against what's been happening in Canada to the point where people are like, dude, calm, like people, normal people are kind of like, calm down. You sound crazy because he's like, you're Gestapo, you're, you're Nazis, you're mm -hmm. communists, you're, you're um, unfortunately, he's seeing, he's seeing the same thing. Yeah. So. But, but he's like visceral about it. You know, you see it in his face and he screams and stuff. People are like, why are you so angry? He's like, you don't understand. No, nope, you, you don't, don't understand. understand. You, you don't understand the bodies and the blood and the carnage yeah. and the whatever he saw it. And that's why he's, that's why he's standing up against it. Yeah. I was just um, listening to shout out to Catholic family news. I was listening to Matt Gaspers and Brian McCall over there. And they were mentioning how uh, Bishop Athanasius Snyder, who mm -hmm. lived under communism for decades, he saw how the the Gestapo switched to the dictatorship of the gender ideology in Europe, and he mm -hmm. he said, "Wow, this is worse than the Soviets." <laughs> so uh, it's it's when you when you have that perspective and you can see you've lived under Soviets, you see how they work, and you see the same thing happening today. Anyways, we got to yeah. talk about Germany in the beginning of World all War right, II. So, what's happening in Germany during all this time? Okay. So I want to set the context here very clearly, very clearly, because it's it's such a dicey issue that's been so politicized. It's so frustrating. We can't even talk about the truth. It's so frustrating. So this is this is what's happening. So since the 19, uh, sorry, since the really 1800, uh, before this time, really quickly, and uh, there's, 
I don't know if I've covered this uh, clearly, so I'm going to try to break this down really quickly. Before this time, there was a what's called there was sort of a public charter. There was a sort of modus vivendi between Jews and Christians. Okay, there was a modus vivendi, meaning the Jews. This is and this is the modus vivendi wasn't always practiced by either side. Mm-hmm. But here's the modus vivendi is that the Jews had a protected space mm-hmm. where they could just be Jews. They could practice their Jewish religion. They could do whatever they wanted to do, be, be Jews in their space and be protected from mobs of men who profane the name of Christian killing them. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that's been since Jan Gregory the Great. That was centuries and centuries old. Mm-hmm. And many Jews actually liked the so-called ghetto because they wanted to actually resist conversion to Christianity. Mm-hmm. They wanted to have a ghetto so they could continue to be Jews, but there were other Jews who didn't want the ghetto. They wanted to go out and be, be capitalists and make a bunch of money. And I, if you read my book, I've documented this from Jewish sources. They talk about there's basically this 5% elite Jews, like so the, this very tiny uh, elite group of Jews who represents like 5% of all Jews, okay? Mm-hmm. They're the ones who become the bankers and they're mm-hmm. into Kab- Kabbalah and magic and all this nonsense. And they're the ones who are promoting sexual revolution and all mm-hmm. this terror. Those are the Jews doing that. Now, keep in mind, that's 5% of all Jews. So, yeah. you know, your day, your Jewish Jew on the street, whatever, he's probably not involved with any of this. But what happens is mm-hmm. there's a, this strong hatred of Jews, which begins to crescendo by the, by 1900. Mm-hmm. So, in uh, 1890, uh, Chivilta Catholica of Jesuits says that I'm not going to quote this pro- exactly right, but what they say is they say Europe is in the grips of a sad question, which in the next century could have calamitous consequences. Mm-hmm. This is what they say in 1890, because they already see what's happening here. They see that Christianity has lost. These people are losing Christianity. And when you lose Christianity, you are provoked to hatred. You can't even love your neighbor. You can't have any sort of, you know, you can't love and protect even a Jew from any brutality. You just hate it. And then further, you you take 5% of Jews who are actually doing something wrong. And then you say, well, all Jews are evil. Okay, well, everybody has evil actors, but you can't just say everybody is evil. Now, there's other factors. We can't get into all the different factors about the Jews because it's a complex topic. And unfortunately, we can't do more justice to this. But suffice it to say that there were bad actor Jews. Okay, let's admit that there were fine. There were Jews who were totally, uh, you know, doing of, uh, you know, they were living fine with society. They weren't doing any wrong. The greatest Jew of this period was a German Jewess named Saint Teresa Benedicta of the Cross. Yeah, Edith Stein. Yeah. She was the, in my opinion, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. Yeah. She became a Catholic. And she wrote some of the greatest philosophical works, in my opinion, which are still underrated to this day. And so it's just a, a, a complete, um, and you know, and St. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, he's a perfect example of this because he's fighting against the Jews who are promoting sexual revolution. And then he's also sheltering the Jews mm-hmm. from all this not this terrible eugenics. So what you have is you have in Germany, you have this strong reaction to the Jews, which is already happening. But it gets promoted by a pagan yeah. whose name is Adolf Hitler. Pagan or Adolf Hitler is not a fascist. He's a pagan. He's not a fascist. He is trying to restore the pagan German heritage. Yep. He's trying to glory in this pagan past that he's inventing. Viking lore and all Viking that. Viking and all that nonsense. 
So he's not not even the fascist. The fascist not even the good, not the good Viking, like, not the Catholic Viking, <laughs> like Leif Erikson, who discovered Eastern Canada. So, go on. so, so, uh, so basically, he's he's um, trying to do this. Then he's influenced by the American eugenics, where the in the American Empire, yep. twelve Singer, half Singer. a dozen, yeah, half a dozen states imposed mutilation on their people. This is another key point. The American Empire in, yep. was imposing mutilated. Mutiliza- mutilization, uh, mutilization, which mutilation. is mutilation. Thank you. Which is sterilization. So they were forcing sterilization on people in the American Empire. So it was in Canada, which helped inspire Adolf Hitler for mm-hmm. what he was doing and the whole eugenics movement, which is just Darwinism. Once yep. again, it's evolution. So it's all about this false racial theory yep. where the you know the Germans are this pure blood and all this nonsense. And so he's pushing his racial theory. This is in the 1920s. So you have the Nazi party in the 1920s. They're just thugs. Yep. And they're fighting against the communists who are also thugs. Yes. And they're just killing people in the street. There's and there's, they're just gangs. They're just these thugs. And, and they're pr- promoting their just um, nonsense uh, pagan theory. Now, one man recognized, recognizes immediately the threat of the Nazis. Because some people are just like, oh, these guys are idiots. But one man understands more than everybody else the the destructive character of the Nazis, and that is the doctor of the t- church in the 20th century, Dietrich von Hildebrand. Mm-hmm. He converts in 1914. He's the greatest, the other greatest philosopher of the 20th century, and he sees it immediately. Now, the Catholic bishops actually excommunicate in 1920s. The Catholic bishops excommunicated any Catholic who joined the Nazi party. Yeah, it was it was a standing excommunication on any Catholic who joined the party. So. That needs to be understood that there was a Catholic opposition to the Nazis immediately. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. the Nazis finally are able to maneuver their way into taking power in 1933. And yep. now, at that point, Dietrich von Hildebrand is famous across Europe. He's being, he's going across, and this is, you need to go read Soul of a Lion by his widow, Alice von Hildebrand, to get the story here. So he is famous throughout Italy or th- famous throughout Europe. He speaks multiple languages and he's giving talks everywhere, you know. Yep. So he re- he knows immediately that the Nazis are going to come and assassinate him. Yep. So he has a choice. He's got a wife and a son. Mm-hmm. He can either lift his voice and continue to speak in Germany and then he'll just be assassinated or he'll just stay quiet. And and so he decides that he needs to he needs to take his wife and son and flee and go to Austria where he hooks up with the fascist uh, Engelbert Delphus of Adolfus, yes. I believe it's pronounced Adolfus yeah. in Austria. So yeah. here's here's another who was anti who listen who was yeah. anti Hitler who was yeah, anti Nazi. This is the point. This is this is what breaks up this dumb fascist. Even even today, lamentably, I'm reading this. Um, ben, this is I mean, this guy more than anybody should understand the difference between fascism and Nazism. But but Seewald writes in his book that Nazism is fascism, but Dolfus, Dolfus is a fascist who funds Dietrich von Hildebrand to write his, his newspaper, which is called the Christian corporate state, yes. which is a German anti-Nazi newspaper that is being published in Germany uh, or in Austria. And so the situation in Austria needs to be understood. So we understand this, the start of world war two. Mm-hmm. So in Austria, there is a great deal of Nazi sympathizers or Nazi party members in Austria. And they're trying to promote Nazism. Mm-hmm. So 
Adolf Hitler has taken over in Germany, 1933. He's imposing his will on everything and doing. Uh, Joseph Ratzinger will will soon be forced into the Hitler youth and uh, forced to uh, be a a uh, uh, anti aircraft uh, assistant when he's 14, 15, 16 during World War II. Um, so Dietrich von Hilderan also. So he's he's fighting against the Nazis in in word in newspaper. He's just he's just dismantling there. And what's great about this newspaper is that it totally dismantles communism and totally dismantles Nazism because some people think that the only way to in Germany, some people think that the only way to counter communism is to become a Nazi. Yeah. And he's and he's showing that these are both evil ideologies. Let's explain the appeal though for people. Why is that the case? Because you're thinking to yourself, well, how can you be so insane that you would join Nazis if, and to be an anti-communist if, if Nazism is also insane? That's that's a good point. Good the point. Reality, yeah. The thing is what we see, but we're, we're seeing fallen man react to the fall of Christendom. And what you were saying about the protection of the Jews, for example, in a Christian society, the word ghetto is an Italian word. Uh, it doesn't mean poor. It just means an, an area for an ethnic group, essentially. Uh, so that could be quite a uh, flourishing, rich area if the culture is like that. And that's what you saw. Anyway, and it could be bad. You know, No one's excusing the, the, the atrocities or anything or the even not just the atrocities. No one's excusing um misstep, Mob mis misstep yeah. and discrimination no one's whatever but the reality is that it's a it's like with all things it's a complicated it's a complicated past history coulomb always says this you know they'll say was this guy a good guy or a bad guy and he's like he was a human being so it depends on which biography you read and that's true and that'll be the same of all of our lives that'll be the same of all of our lives and we have to remember that when we're, when we're looking at history we're looking at our ancestors for better or for worse and we should give them the benefit of the doubt when trying to understand what why they did what they did so why would uh what was happening in germany etc well uh when christendom goes away and germany was already fractured so much because it had been split by protestantism and catholicism uh, that the, the, the problems there when when christendom goes away you have to rely on some sort of national identity if you want some sort of national movement. And you're coming out of World War One, and it's fall of Christendom and the Depression, and Germany was hit as hard as anybody by the economic problems. You know, you're going to the grocery store with a wheelbarrow full of cash to buy a loaf of bread. It was totally nonsense. So you appeal to a nationalist sensibility <clears throat> in a place that's lost its Catholic faith, which means you appeal to what? You appeal to this folklore, this not, this Viking, this basically paganism, Okay. The reality is, is communism is a uh, communism is an atheistic. Okay, so people people aren't atheists. People are, you know, Chesterton says this. Atheism says it's the nat. No, atheism is not the natural state of fallen man. The natural state of fallen man is pantheism. Is polytheism. Is 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 Greek mythology. That's the nat. That's why we see all pre-Christian states are pantheist states. Okay, so. Um, Germany is basically appealing to that natural sensibility where man, and you see that today. You see that today with why people, why do men love think men like Joe Rogan, etc.? Because they're not atheists; they're they're anti-Christian or whatever. But they're not atheists. They're they're all about the power of the self and the um, you know the the new myth today is Darwinianism, which you know which is just a pagan myth in a sense. And Hitler was appealing to that, which is if you're faced with Nazism, which is a hard sell, or communism, which is a hard sell to the masses because it requires austerity. Um, you know, because communism is saying we're going to all be equal and have austerity. That's not fun unless you basically force people to do it. And you can't sell that in a German society at that time because Germany was economically and culturally 
um, one of the greatest on earth before the first world war um, as far as their influence. So you're saying you're not going to sell that where they're like industrializing. Everyone's working in a factory. Um, they basically have this like steely, weird communist stoicism. You're not going to sell us that. What you can sell us is um, we're the superior race and we deserve all the nice things. And as a result of that, we should be, you know, the highest of civilization because of our German blood. That's easy to sell to fall man. So that's what's going on right there. Um, both of those will lead eventually to terrible errors. In a, in a sense, Nazism is Freemasonry, if you think about it all the way through, because it is not atheistic. Um, it is still spiritual. Um, uh, and it still is, a, a, it's, it's Gnostic, you know, in, in, in that way. And that's what Freemasonry ultimately is versus versus uh, versus the Marxism, which is essentially just atheist materialism. So that's kind of the context. So when you look back, you go, how would they all fall into this? It's not much different than American exceptionalism. Um, if you think about the the myth of like the American, I mean, it's <laughs> Mormonism is kind of a nonviolent version of the Gnostic Nazism that you see insofar as this is the myth of our people and we're special and we've been chosen by God or the gods or whatever, and we should be rich and powerful and so forth. And that's, you see that all over the world today. Nazism was just an example of that. Um, that and you know, that's it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, <clears throat> so the, the nuncio to Germany in the 1920s Pacelli. is Eugenio Pacelli. Eugenio Pacelli speaks fluent German during his papal court in, when he was Pope, his, his, uh, the, the language that they spoke in the papal court was German. Uh, mm -hmm. It was he was so his his right hand man was actually a woman, uh, Madre uh, Pascalina. Mm -hmm. uh, so she was the uh, and she was she a Bavarian German? nun. What okay. was that? She was Bavarian. So yeah, so she oh. yeah, so she's German. Pacelli speaks German. They're just speaking German in the, in the papal court in Rome. That's during his pontificate. So um, he uh, he says I don't know when he said it, but he he thinks that Nazism is the greatest heresy ever uh, at this time, and but look, they realize that the 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 church first in 1933 when Hitler comes to power tries to sign a Concord dot with Hitler to protect the church. That mm -hmm. what this is what needs to be understood. I was taught in university. This is the type of this is the type of propaganda Nothing, you get. Whatever, yeah. In university, they they think a concordat is like, oh, we're gonna just play ball with Hitler and let him do his thing. That's not what a concordat is. A concordat is trying to protect the church from a, a possibly evil force. But uh, Eugenio Pacelli at the time thought that even though he knew how bad it was, he thought that this might actually protect the church. He was wrong because immediately the Hitler just began to uh, disregard the concordat and suppress the church Dietrich von Hildebrand was totally against it he thought it was a terrible move it was just it was confusing the faithful as well even at that time it was confusing the faithful because what happened after Hitler took power is that the Catholic bishops of, of Germany then got soft that's when they lifted the excommunication because they realized that I mean people are just gonna this is the tough part too because if you be strict with the, the Hitler with Hitler we know that there's going to be blood in the streets Mm -hmm. So you could be strict. You could enforce that 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 ex excommunication. You could, and then they would just be drugged out of their homes and shot in the streets. And we know that to be the case because they've been doing that for years now. Mm -hmm. And so that's the hard part as a churchman. Do because you're responsible for their souls. Should you enforce the excommunication and then have blood on your hands, quote unquote? Maybe mm -hmm. is what this is what they're thinking. You know, yep. should I enforce the excommunication? Then these Catholic families are drugged out in the street and killed. 
Should I enforce that? Or should I lift the excommunication and then try to oppose him by other means? This is the difficulty of war. This is why people should not judge strictly people who make bad decisions. Like mm -hmm. we'll talk about Patin in World War II and his bad decision, quote unquote. We need to we need to realize that this is wartime. And it's sometimes you're in a situation where you, you can't you've got two bad, two bad decisions. You have to make one or two negative consequences. You know, you have to make one of them. This is why it's, I was thinking, thinking about this yesterday. This is why army the vatican the, the the church needs an army like honestly historically why does the church have military forces either their own or this is why the papal states being taken we could go back even for that was a war of prussia basically but this you know these the, that era um this is why you need to have a military because these serial murderers they don't it's funny they don't usually they're not usually very reasonable so they don't respond to anything but force so you know you know, the, the tenets of what's a just action as a Catholic. I mean, you know, it's kind of like what we're going through now. I was asked by a priest, could you guys have some sort of Cristero rebellion up in Canada? I'm like, no, there's no way we could justify it because even if you got a thousand guys together, you'd all be decimated and you'd cut. Anyway, it's just like there's, there's no possible way to justify any rebellion because there's no chance of winning. Um, and there was no chance of winning in Germany for the Catholics. Um, there was a chance of winning in, in, in Spain. There was a chance of winning in Portugal, happily happened bloodlessly. And there was a chance of winning in Italy. Um, so, it, yeah. and, and Mexico, there was a chance of winning, which is why it was allowed to happen. So, but um, when you take away the power of a Catholic state, which is acts as the Pope's army, and you take away the actual papal states, which actually have their own armies, um, you see the fall of Christendom, and if man will not listen to the threat of eternal damnation, he's not going to listen to anything. Yes. So we got to wrap up here. So there's a, a few crucial points here. And so Dolfus is a pious Catholic. He's mm -hmm. funding the anti-Nazi. He's a pious Catholic fascist. Mm -hmm. um, trigger, oh, alert. trigger Trigger alert. Uh, so he's a pious Catholic fascist funding the anti-Catholic Nazi newspaper of Dietrich von Hildebrand. Dietrich yeah. von Hildebrand is also making he he meets with uh, Blessed Charles' widow, uh, the Empress, yeah. and the the Habsburg, and he's trying to. Dietrich von Hildebrand is actually a monarchist, and he's trying to form alliances with the monarchist parties who are still in sort of in abeyance, trying to support fascism. Maybe they're not so sure about fascism, but but he is. So he's. And he's just dismantling and he's, you know, he's German through and through and just dismantling everything in German. So he's destroying Nazism. Well, what happens? The Nazis break in and assassinate Dolfus in 1934. So Dietrich von Hildebrand knows that he's next. Mm -hmm. So he's always he, he is in Austria, always looking over his shoulder. There's people giving him threats all the time. This is 1934 to 1938. So the next four years. He stays in Austria and continues to fight against the Nazis with his anti-Nazi newspaper. Meanwhile, the foreign minister to Austria, Nazi foreign minister, says that uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand is public enemy number one. Yeah, because he is the he's the greatest German Catholic at this time, just destroying Nazism one by one with his newspaper. And so he's helping the Catholics, supporting them to fight against Nazism. And finally, uh, in 1937, through the influence of Eugenio Pacelli, who's now the Secretary of State to Pius XI. So now this is where Pius XI really shines as a great yeah. pope in 1937. Yeah. 
1937, he produces one of his greatest encyclicals, which is Divini Rendem Tortis mm-hmm. in 1937, uh, which condemns communism. This is one of the greatest acts. <laughs> I love this story because in 1937, they published the anti-communist encyclical. And what happens is the Nazis praise it. They're, they're thinking, wow, they, they hate the communists. These Catholics are wonderful. And uh, in Divini Rendem Tortis, there's this great line that says, nothing that is not built upon Jesus Christ, the solid rock, will crumble. Mm-hmm. And so he's talking about communism. Can't build up something that's not based on Jesus Christ is going to die. So the Nazis all praise it. Wow, these Catholics are great. They're anti-communists. Well, the very next week, the, f- the first and last ever German encyclical, Mitt Brenner, is smuggled into Germany, which is a German condemnation of Nazism, uh, which is written very much by Eugenia Pacelli, mm-hmm. Pius XII. And Mitt Brenner is then, the Pope orders this, this encyclical, or, or the, the basics of it, to be read from every single pulpit in, uh, in Nazi Germany. And mm-hmm. so the church has done playing games. The church mm-hmm. has tried. We've tried to work with Germany. It's, it's clear that Hitler is going to just kill everybody. And now we, it's, it's kind of like we're going to have to go to martyrdom at this point. Yeah. And so the, this is such a bold move because we need to understand. So Nazism is condemned on ev- at every Catholic pulpit. So anybody who think, anybody who lies and says, oh, the Catholic Church was soft on Nazism, not true at all. Not true, not all. true in the slightest. In fact, this is like one of the this is one of the times when the church really shines because the church yeah. says <laughs> church condemns Nazism on every single pulpit, knowing that die. they will be they will all die. And they yeah. do because immediately Hitler targets the church more than ever and just mm-hmm. starts destroying the Catholic Church, you know, sending priests to Dachau and Auschwitz mm-hmm. and every and just this is where the martyrs come forth. And this is what makes Dietrich von Hildebrand write later that the great. The, our era is so great because of so many saints and martyrs. And yep. this is what really is shining. And this is St. Teresa Benedicta, I think the greatest German martyr of this time. She, as a Jew, Jewish Catholic, she says, I accept, she makes a vow to God to accept the cross, whatever it may be. And she accepts the cross. She says, on behalf of the Jewish people for the conversion of the Jewish people mm-hmm. and for uh for the peace of God and for reparation. She takes it all like a saint. Yep. And she's, she's pulled out of the monastery with her sister, Rosa. She, at this time she's in the Netherlands, she's pulled out and she accepts the cross and all the witnesses seeing her are observe her, her total peaceful prayerful demeanor as she boards the train to Auschwitz and is is immediately gassed. She is such a great saint of this period. And, um, and also, we have Saint Maximilian Kolbe as well. He he um, he was he oh. he received the call in Poland. He received the call that he was going to Auschwitz, and he put the phone down and said, "Yes, Mary." <laughs> I love that. He gets on the, he gets on the train, and then uh, he starts singing Polish songs of, of patriotic and Marian songs on the train to Auschwitz. He gets to Auschwitz, and we know the story. Uh, he's Which he's. Works. We'll talk about that. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to put that on on hold for World War II. But um, but so what happens here is 1937. They they now they target the church, and now they go after Dietrich von Hildebrand to take over Austria. Mm-hmm. And this is the key, because so at this point, January 1938, and this is when the sign comes from heaven. Yes, we have this crazy aurora borealis, and that's prophesied and, in Fatima. When I and that was so yeah. yeah. So back in Fatima, it said there will be a sign from heaven showing that there will be a great light, a great light, great yes. So the great light from heaven, 
will be the sign that the next war is starting. The next war will start. Yeah. If if we if I am not heated, if God is not yes. heated and God is not uh, his wrath is not appeased by penance, and this will be the sign from heaven. So this was and uh, Marshall quotes this in his book, and he mentioned he he looked up the New York Times article from 1938, and the New York Times article says that people in England and, and as far as Italy, Italy never sees the aurora borealis. This mm-hmm. is something that's in K. You guys see it in uh, yeah, where you you're can. at. Yeah, you okay, can. yeah. So you can see it in Canada. You have to be far more north. If you haven't heard of the Aurora Borealis, you can look it up. The Northern Lights. You can look up the Northern Lights um, for Australian viewers. I, I don't know if you've heard of that. Maybe you have it in, in the Southern Hemisphere. I don't know. But um, so the Northern Lights, some kind of Northern Lights happen. And it's seen as far as Italy, which is just shocking. That's never just happens. what it never happens. Yeah. And people literally think that the houses are on fire and they start calling the fire department. This is how, I mean, this is a big sign. This is, yep. this was in the news. This was in the New York times. So it's a sign. This is the sign from heaven, January, 1938. Now what happens? Hitler is pushing to take Austria. The, the, uh, chancellor who had replaced Dolphus Dolphus is the, uh, is rather compliant to the Nazis. He's weak, but he says, I can't, I can't let you in unless I give it a full referendum referendum of the Austrian people. We have to have a full vote. All the Austrians have to vote to allow the Nazis in or not. And Hitler says, okay, thanks. Bye. Next day he comes in with his tanks before (laughs) the referendum. I don't know if it's the next day, but before the referendum happened, there was no referendum. This was an invasion of Austria. Mm -hmm. It is falsely the beginning of the war. It is falsely called the annexation of Russia or the annexation of <laughs> annexation of Austria no. because there were Nazis in Austria. Okay, there were Nazis in Austria, but he came in with his tanks mm-hmm. without an invitation and yeah. took over. That's called yeah. an that's called an invasion. Just yeah. because there weren't shots fired, that's an invasion. And they went straight for Dietrich von Hildebrand's house that very night. They came at three a.m. They knew all his hiding spots. They had already studied his 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 the layout of his apartment. They'd gone everywhere, and, and Dietrich von Hildebrand had to take the, the last train out of Austria with his wife to flee the Nazis, and he, by God's providence, fled the Nazis. But this is why, in my opinion, I don't know if you agree. Well, I mean, t- tell me if you agree, Kennedy. This is why I think that the prophecy was fulfilled from Fatima, which says that the war will begin under Pius XI, because this was March 1938. Pius- yeah, I believe that, yeah. Okay, so Pius XI dies, I think, 39. Early, early 1939. Um, so the false history says, oh, it didn't, World War II didn't start until the invasion of Poland. You see, you see this the is liberal the, this is the really, its history. It's anti-Catholic because yeah. it goes against, literally goes against Catholic prophecy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it goes against Catholic prophecy. So clearly, yeah, uh, yeah and, and it's far, unfortunately, I, I see Catholics talk about this and they're like, well, they try to explain it some way because they accept the premise that World War II happened with the invasion of Poland. Mm-hmm. But I, I mean, I, I think that it, when tanks roll in uninvited and take over, I think that's an invasion. I think that's a declaration of war, in my opinion. But the problem is immediately they, Hitler starts, this is what really is crazy about World War II is that Hitler just starts taking over yeah. uninvited or pressuring people with his tanks. He's taken over more, not just Austria. He starts taking over other places and France, Germany, or France, uh, England, they just sort of say, okay, let's sign a treaty and just let you have your land. Yeah, that's what they do for the next few years. Was, but it's the church that was bad for saying let's not let's not provoke blood in the streets. But England and France, they're fine because they were tolerant of the Nazis. 
Yeah, they were talented of the Nazis at this point. Nobody did anything. They signed treaties with Hitler at that point. Mm-hmm. Let's just let them go because they were the heroes at the end. Yeah, Time Magazine, so. Man of the Year. <laughs> yeah. So was. this is the false history. So uh, we tried to get it. Uh, did Pius XI cause the current crisis by not consecrating Russia? Had he consecrated Russia, World War II would not have happened, presumably. Mm-hmm. So if you would have, if you would have consecrated Russia, there would have, there would not have been World War II, um, and World War II is really what really causes Vatican II, and we'll talk about yes, that yeah. in the time because World War II is what destroys and discredits the only Catholic movement basically was just fascism and Catholic action. And we haven't talked about other, like even the, um, I mean, the Catholic movement in America, the Legion of Decency, it destroys that too. Yeah. And it destroys Quebec. Everything is, is falsely branded as fascist, which isn't even close to fascism, like Nazism. And even to this day, we have Antifa who brands anything Catholic as fascist. We're, we're still always with that legacy. It killed, it killed Quebec too. The, uh, yep. the, the movement underneath, um, Duplessis. Yep. Yeah. So we have to wrap up here. We've gone a little bit over to try to get through this history before. So next week, stay tuned. We're going to debate. Um, we, so we we'll have to we'll so talk about to, World War Two, and we're going to and we're going to yeah. debate. Uh, so next week we Pius. will talk about World War Two, and we'll debate whether Pius the Twelfth did the consecration. I will argue that he did. Kennedy will argue that he did not, and we'll talk about that, especially in regards to the era of Russia. So let's offer up a pater noster. For the consecration of Russia, for wait, uh, that happened. I mean, it did happen, but more consecration and conversion of Russia. I mean, okay, good. Uh, I, I should I should just change my whole uh, demeanor. Consecration of Russia did happen. Now we want the full conversion of Russia to the Catholic faith. Okay. Uh, most of all, we want the errors of Russia destroyed and um, Marxism overthrown, and every other evil conspiracy that we've tried to explain is all one conspiracy: the fallen angels. Yes. Yeah. Uh, let me get my resurrection icon here and we'll offer up that and we'll close out the fourth week of Easter. Nomine Patris, Fidi, Spiritu Sancti, Amen. Pater Noster, Quies and Jadis, Sancti Vigeto Nomen Tuum, Adveniat Regnum Tuum, Fia Voluntas Tua, Sicut in Cielo et in Terra. Panem Nostrum Quotidianum da Nobisodie, Edimite Nobis de Vita Nostra, Sicut et Nostimitimus de Vitoribus Nostris, Et Nenos in Ducas in Tentationem Sed Liberanos Amalo, Amen. Nomine Patris, Fidi, Spiritu Sancti, Amen. Christ is risen. Risen indeed. Amen.